Neurological and cognitive disorders, as well as mental illness, have long been misunderstood, misinterpreted, and feared. Throughout the years, the American Psychiatric Association has discovered and sometimes removed clinical diagnoses that end up in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Each week, my co-host and I will bring you a new disorder and provide you with all the information you need to better understand how the human brain works. This is Psyche Saturday. Today's Psyche Saturday, we will delve into the last of the cluster A personality disorders, schizotypal personality disorder. I am your host, Sarah, and my co-host Dan is here with me wearing his wonderful Canada hat, although they call it something different in Canada, and now I can't remember what they call it. It's like a, it's like a toque or something. Uh, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. We call it a beanie. And they call it something else. I think it's a toque. Well, I would call this a ski hat. Yeah. It's tall and it's got the ball on it. Yes. A beanie doesn't have that. Correct. But I think... I think uh, Mr. Canada called it a, a toque. Cool. Cool. So according to the DSM-5... Schizotypal personality disorder is characterized as a pervasive pattern of social and interpersonal deficits marked by acute discomfort with and reduced capacity for close relationships, as well as by cognitive or perceptual distortions and eccentricities of behavior. And we have to remember that the cluster A personality disorders are the odd and eccentric group of behaviors. So keep that in mind when we continue to discuss. In order to be diagnosed with schizotypal personality disorder, an individual must meet five or more of the following criteria. One, ideas of reference. Two, odd beliefs or magical thinking that influences behavior. Three, unusual perceptual experiences. Four, odd thinking and speech. Five, suspicious or paranoid ideation. Six, inappropriate or constricted affect. Seven, behavior or appearance that is odd, eccentric, or peculiar. Eight, lack of close friends. And nine, excessive social anxiety that does not diminish with familiarity that tends to be associated with paranoid fears. Individuals with schizotypal personality disorder often think specific events have particular and unusual meaning for him or her. They may be superstitious or preoccupied with paranormal phenomena that are outside the norms of their subculture. These individuals may also believe they can read others' thoughts or have special powers 
that allow them to sense events before they happen. And to differentiate between schizotypal personality disorder and schizophrenia, just as we saw with schizoid personality disorder, schizophrenia has diagnostic criteria of full states of psychosis, whereas these personality disorders do not. Those with schizotypal personality disorder may have bouts of psychosis, but it does not last for a long period and is not nearly as significant as with schizophrenia. So, how prevalent do we think schizotypal personality disorder is in the general population? So, I would have said a pretty low number, but once you read the symptoms, uh, I feel like maybe there are more people that present with those symptoms, so maybe my number will go up. I was originally going to say something like 2%, but now I'm thinking... 3.25%. Okay. In community studies, rates ranged from 0.6% in Norway to 4.6% in the United States. The National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions found it has a prevalence of about 3.9% among the general population. Nice. Good job. All right. You're getting better every every uh, episode. <laughs> You're doing well. Among clinical populations, schizotypal personality disorder is quite infrequent. What do you think the number is there? For those that have been in clinical settings. Like psychiatric clinical mm -hmm. settings. Okay. Hmm. That's a tough one because this is another one where I feel like a lot of people who are in um, psychiatric facilities present with a lot of those symptoms. So I want to go with some bonkers high number, like 20%, 12%, final answer. Zero to 1.9%. What? How can it be lesser than in the general population? That's impossible. <laughs> nope. Wrong. <laughs> how, how is that possible? Because you have to think that when they're in clinical settings, they're not necessarily diagnosed with schizotypal personality disorder. They might be diagnosed with something else. They might be on the schizophrenia spectrum. They might be diagnosed with a more advanced, quote unquote, like schizoaffective or schizophrenia itself, rather than schizotypal personality disorder. Whatever, bro. <laughs> So what does this mean among violent criminals? How often do we see this type of personality disorder within that type of population? Do you think it's high, low? Where do you think it is? In Negative 8%. <laughs> I don't know. Now I'm totally thrown off. Um, pi percent. Okay. <laughs> In Johnson et al. study from 2000, adolescent personality disorders associated with violence and criminal behavior during adolescence and early adulthood, they found that adolescents with schizotypal personality disorder were 1.33 times more at risk for committing arson or vandalism, 1.95 times more at risk of threatening to injure others, and 1.65 times more at risk of assaulting someone resulting in an injury. 
However, this risk was significantly lower than for those who have borderline personality disorder, schizoid personality disorder, and narcissistic personality disorder, who all scored at over two times more at risk of assault against another person, resulting in their injury. However, when they looked at overall violent acts against another person, they found that those adolescents with schizotypal personality disorder ranged around the same risk as these other personality disorders. 1.73 times more at risk for schizotypal versus 1.80 for borderline, 1.43 for paranoid, and 1.84 for narcissistic. Furthermore, according to Spitzberg and Vexler's 2007 article, The Personality Pursuit, Personality Attributions of Unwanted Pursuers and Stalkers, they found that those with schizotypal personality disorder were 3.26 times more likely to stalk an acquaintance, 2.74 times more likely to stalk someone they are in a friendship with, and 3.60 times more likely to stalk someone who they are in a romantic relationship with. This compares to all other personality disorders observed in this study, including antisocial, borderline, histrionic, narcissistic, and others, as having the highest risk in relationships with an acquaintance, average risk in relationships with friends, and average risk for stalking in relationships with romantic partners. So they're average or above average when it comes to violence among all personality disorders. Huh. All right. That's a little surprising. I would expect people presenting with those symptoms to be more insular. Right. But I guess the idea is they would prefer to be isolated. And so when they're forced into social situations, they act um, recklessly. Yeah. Um, I mean, they also have paranoid ideations. Mm -hmm. um, they're suspicious of others. They're untrusting of others. So they may feel right. like. Right. And that's what I'm saying. Like, those things would tend to lead you to not be around other people. But I guess when you're forced to, you're going to assume the worst. Right. Yeah. I do want to talk about that they are at highest risk of stalking somebody who is an acquaintance rather than someone that they're in a relationship with or someone they know. And again, I think that's because of that, that ideation that they think something more is happening with this person mm -hmm. versus the reality of the situation where they don't even know this person. Um, you know, we see a lot of stalkers who see a celebrity on television and get this and they get this idea in their head that they have some sort of relationship with that person right um you know it makes me think and i, I don't want to make a joke of this but it makes me think of the episode of friends where joey has the stalker who's oh, played yeah. by brooke shields yeah, yeah where yeah. she literally thinks, thinks that, that he's, he's dr drake, drake ramore and when she sees him in person and then also on the television, she's like, how are you here and right, there at the same time? It. Right. Um, it's, you know, obviously they made, it was a comedy show. So like they had to make a little bit of a joke about things. But so, yeah, I mean, 
it happens a lot. You know, we we saw it with, um, and now I'm forgetting his name. Oh my god, we saw this with John Hinckley Jr., who was the person who attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan, who thought he was doing it for Jodie Foster. Right. Like he somehow thought that he was going to impress her or something by killing the president. You know, that's that's not normal thinking. Right. <laughs> right. So it it's things it's things like that that kind of push them for this this stalking people that they don't really know. Because right. in their heads they feel like they know them. Right. And it's easier to um it's easier to invent a reality on top of very little factual evidence. So people that you know you know what they actually think and want. So it's harder to convince yourself that they think and want other things. But with strangers or casual acquaintances, it's easier to, you know, like you the 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 new girl at work, you just assume she's into you because she like held the door for you one day or like right. gave you the extra coffee that they gave her at the cafeteria. Whereas the person that you've been working with for five or ten years who you know is married and has kids and is now into the gender that you are not, it's harder to imagine this person being physically attracted to you because you know all this stuff about them. So, yeah, that makes sense that they can build these fantasies, they can build these illusions more readily around people that they're less acquainted with personally. Right. So when I began to research famous people with schizotypal personality disorder, I was met with a list that kind of did, but also didn't surprise me. Many of these people I found were actually mass murderers and school shooters. That was a lot of the list. Mm-hmm. Alvaro Rafael Castillo was convicted on August 21st, 2009 on charges of murder as well as attempted murder. On August 30th, 2006, Castillo shot and killed his father and then went to his former high school, Orange High School in North Carolina, with a cherry bomb, a 9mm, and a sawed-off 12-gauge shotgun. Thankfully, only two were injured at the school shooting, and no one was killed there. Castillo was later diagnosed with schizotypal personality disorder, as well as some other mental disorders, and was said to have not been in touch with reality at the time of the shooting. He had apparently had an obsession with the Columbine massacre. Kim de Gelder. Can you guess where where he's from? Uh, He is from the Netherlands. (laughs) Attacked children in a nursery school in Belgium on January 23rd, 2009, killing two infants and one adult. He utilized a knife in his attack. He later told his attorney he had heard voices as a teen, and his attorney argued at trial that he suffered from schizophrenia and could not be held fully accountable for the attack. Psychiatrists, however, did not believe he did indeed have schizophrenia, but instead schizotypal personality disorder. In March of 2013, de Gelder was found guilty of four counts of murder and was sentenced to life imprisonment. Media outlets had said he was wearing some sort of possible Joker makeup at the time of the attack, and that he had watched The Dark Knight an unusually high amount of times, 
and quoted the character of Harvey Dent just before the attack. Ban movies. I know. And speaking of The Dark Knight, on July 20th, 2012, during a midnight screening of The Dark Knight Rises, James Holmes opened gunfire on the movie theater patrons, killing 12 and injuring 70 others. He was found guilty of 24 counts of murder, 140 counts of attempted murder, and one count of possessing explosives. On August 7th, 2014, Holmes was sentenced to life in prison without parole. During the trial, Dr. William Reed, a court-appointed psychiatrist who had evaluated Holmes the year prior, diagnosed him with schizotypal personality disorder, but said he was sane and competent to stand trial. There were videotaped interviews between the two, which showed Holmes stating he was socially awkward, had paranoid, violent thoughts prior to the massacre, and that he thought federal agents were following him at the time of the shooting and had hoped they would apprehend him prior to the attack. He was also diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder by another psychiatrist. So, slight tangent. It's a shame that it really seems like in a lot of cases of people who commit mass violence, even even in some cases with some serial killers, these are people that want to get caught. Now, in the case of serial killers, in a lot of cases, they want to get caught simply for the notoriety. But I feel like there's some part of them that wants to get caught because they know what they're doing is wrong. And they know they need to be stopped, but they can't really stop themselves. They have a compulsion. And yeah. I feel like in the case of you, the person that you said was hoping to get caught before they committed the act. It's, it's said that in a lot of cases, it seems like a lot of this violence could be prevented. Because these people don't really want to commit these acts, but they feel like for some reason they feel compelled inexorably to commit them. And that should be like one of the easiest things to treat out of someone. And I don't necessarily mean medically, I mean purely therapeutically even. To be able to, you know, it's hard It's hard enough when someone thinks that they have to do a thing, they actually have to do a thing. But when they know that the thing is bad and they don't really want to do it, I feel like that's the easiest intervention. Like, it, it should be pretty easy if, if the opportunity presents itself right. to give these people therapy to potentially stop them from committing these acts. He had no history of violence in his, in his background either. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. It's, it's the opportunity didn't present itself. I'm sure if there was a psychiatrist or a psychologist aware of his mental state that they probably would have attempted to, you know, help, help guide him away from that and just say, Hey, it seems like you feel compelled to do a thing. You don't really need to do it though. Right. Um, but it's unfortunate that there was no awareness of his propensity to commit this kind of act mm -hmm. because it really, I, I feel like it would have been an easy one to prevent. You right. know, it's like we always talk about the, the worst thing about cancer is how easy, how preventable it is, but you just don't know it until it's too late. Yeah. And it seems like in a lot, uh, I'm, I'm hearing in a lot of these cases that you're talking about that it really, it really seems like there's an opportunity for early prevention that we just can't get a hold of. Yes, absolutely. And 
you know, we talk about it all the time. That's part of the problem in, in this country with, with the mental health system. We we The diagnostic process correct. Yeah, is not there. <laughs> There's still just such a stigma surrounding it that so many people, A, don't want to get professional help because they feel like it shows weakness or vulnerability or something. And then there are people who don't have the money to get help because generally speaking, if it's not a state funded facility, if you're going to, you know, a private practice to seek mental health help, it's very expensive, very expensive. Even with insurance, it's very expensive. And especially when you don't have insurance. So we we need a complete overhaul of the mental health care system in this country to a show people here that it's not a sign of weakness for trying to get help. We say all the time, even if you don't have a mental illness, go to therapy. It's just a stress reliever. I mean, it can help you in in so many different aspects of your life. It doesn't have to be specifically that you have a mental disorder. We need to make sure that it's more accessible to people. That's a huge part of it. And we have to have people in it who are who are in it to actually help these people, not have power over people, because that's kind of what happened, at least back in the day when when mental institutions were were running rampant with horrible, horrible treatments, quote unquote treatments. I don't they're not even called treatments. It, it was just a power trip for these people. You know, the, the they had the most vulnerable population with them and they could abuse them and, and do anything they want. I mean, lobotomies were happening left and right. Yeah, which is crazy. You know, um, so we really need to have more people in the field who are in it for the right reasons. And a lot of people don't want to get into the field because it it doesn't pay well <laughs> unless you are like a yeah. top tier psychiatrist. Um, but if you're a social worker, you you're you hardly get paid anything. Yeah. If you're a mental health counselor, you get paid maybe slightly more than a social worker if you do. But even still, you're making fifty or sixty grand a year, right. and that's it. And and especially Which, here uh, in on Suffolk Long County, Island, you literally can't live on. You that. can't live on that. If you're two people making fifty or sixty, you could probably barely squeak you by. would have and a I small mean, home and i mean barely with very low taxes you'd have to live in an area that's not the greatest area right. <laughs> you know then psychologists obviously that goes up in in pay grade but in order to be a psychologist you have to go through a phd or a PsyD program so you have to go for years of schooling and Yes, some of those programs, you know, you'll get paid to go through those programs, but a lot of them you don't. You have to pay for it, you know, yourself. So financial aid or or loans or whatever it is or pay out of pocket if you can. You have to weigh, you know, the return on investment there. Is it going to be worth it when you get out of your PhD program to be making 75000 a year? Is is that... Right worth the time and effort and the money that you put into it. And then obviously when we talk about psychiatry, I mean, that's a whole different realm. That's way more money, way more time, way more schooling. Yes, you get paid very well 
But again, that's if you're working at a specific location. Some psychiatrists don't get paid very well if they're working for potentially a state institution or, you know, some sort of government funded place. Private practice, obviously, you're going to get paid much more. But that's part of the reason why so many people don't go into this field, because like I said, the return on investment isn't there. There's 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 no, you know, I, I tell you all the time I used to I work with psychiatric population. And a lot of the people that I worked with, a lot of my colleagues were there just to have a job. Yep. They didn't want to be yep. there to actually help these clients. They just wanted to come somewhere, get money and go home. Yeah. I mean, the two most obvious things to me throughout your career therein was, was a, that the fact that there are a lot of people who were just there to punch in, do the job, punch out and go home, which look, I mean, you know, if that's your attitude with your career, then that's fine. I mean, I'm at the point in my career where that's mostly what I do. I just go to work so I can make money to pay the bills and go home. Um, there's nothing wrong with not loving your job, but there are certain careers that you really shouldn't be in unless you love them. And careers that involve helping people are one of those careers that you should not be in unless you at least like it and ideally love it, you know, unless you're passionate about it. Uh, So that was one thing that I noticed. And then number two was that the whole department in general just seems to be to have the same attitude as far as, you know, it's finances and it's administration and logistics. It was very much just a department that had a budget and that was it and there was nothing to it. No one really no one really seemed to care in like the upper echelons of administration about about the department. The the people that I saw that were caring the most, you know, I never went I never went with the clients to their psychology or psychiatry appointments. Um, I did go which we had in-house psychologists and psychiatrists, but I was ve- I worked very closely with the social worker and I could tell that she was there for the right reasons. She was a phenomenal person. She cared about those clients like you wouldn't you couldn't even imagine. I'm pretty sure she was not getting paid very well. I mean, it it's a state-funded program and yeah. she was a social worker, so I can't right. imagine she was getting paid very well. But she was one of those people that felt the work itself was enough right, for whatever she put into her degrees and yeah. getting to the place that she was. Like I said, like my position, you didn't have to have any experience. You didn't need any qualifications except to have a high school diploma, literally, and a car because a license because we had to drive the people to appointments so they were hiring obviously we had to pass background checks and and things like that so they weren't hiring criminals to come in who who were like you know child abusers or anything but they just needed bodies so they were just hiring people who whoever was coming through the door to get a job who wasn't a criminal you know so it, it it's we have the state-run institutions that are still so poorly run by administration. And then we have the private institutions that are so expensive that nobody can even go to them unless you're from Beverly Hills. Yeah, and that's the thing. And and I was going to mention that before. Is like, if you want to make money in psychiatry, 
you have to be in private practice in one of these areas where people are willing to pay you a ton of money. You know, and in a lot of cases, these are people that I'm not, I don't want to say don't need the psychiatric therapy, the, the help, but they don't need it as badly as the people who don't have the money to pay for it. Right. You know, in general, the people who are the most seriously afflicted by these life-altering disorders are are the poorer people. Yep. You know, so they need the most help. But that's just, you know, again, not to go down, too, down a rabbit hole too far, but that's just a consequence of the system that we live in. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that. So back on to schizotypal personality disorder right. now that we went down through that tangent. As we always tell our listeners, the likelihood of someone with a mental illness becoming a violent person is the same as someone who does not have a mental illness. So it, it, it doesn't matter if they are afflicted by a personality disorder or depression or schizophrenia or something like that. The risk of them becoming a violent offender is the same with the general population. And that's the point that we're trying to make with Psyche Saturday. And I think we say that every every week. There are plenty of people who suffer from these disorders who never become violent individuals. But of course, when you go to search for them, all of the bad people pop up because that's what people want to hear about. So on the list that I found of people who were specifically diagnosed with schizotypal personality disorder. They were all, you know, murderers, attempted murderers, things like that. I wasn't finding on that list anybody who maybe did good in the world. But I did find a list of a couple of people who it was possibly speculated that they have had schizotypal personality disorder. One of them being Dutch painter Vincent van Gogh, which I don't know. I don't know much about his life, but he is speculated to have possibly had schizotypal personality disorder. Yeah, that makes sense. They do say that a lot of people who suffer from it may have very creative minds. So there is a possibility there. Also, 19th century American poet Emily Dickinson is also said to have had schizotypal personality disorder. She preferred to live her life in isolation and had no close relationships. She had like a couple, but once she started really getting into that recluse life, she stopped really having relationships with anybody. It just became her in her home. She was diagnosed at the time with, quote, nervous prostration, prostration, which is essentially a nervous breakdown. And they say that fragmentation in thought process, as well as the possibility of a psychotic break and recovery can be noted in her works. Furthermore, some even speculated that she may have also suffered from agoraphobia, being that she just never wanted to leave her home. Many people didn't even know that she was writing poetry. It was after she passed that I believe her sister or sister-in-law found her works. So she just stayed in isolation and wrote her poems. And that was that was her life. So it's a possibility. Yeah. Let's see it. So how does neurobiology play into this disorder? McClure et al.'s 
2013 study of cognitive impairment and functional capacity of those with schizotypal personality disorder observed 46 individuals with the disorder. They found that these individuals exhibited impairments in real-world functioning, as well as demonstrated impaired performance on assessments of functional capacity. They were less likely to live independently or to have earned more than a high school diploma. Furthermore, Key et al.'s 2018 study of multiple frequency bands analysis in those with schizotypal personality disorder found that through fMRI, neural activity in those with schizotypal personality disorder is disrupted globally, which indicates abnormal fractional amplitude of low-frequency fluctuations of various networks. FALFF is used to measure spontaneous fluctuations in bold fMRI signal intensity in different regions of the brain. So essentially, their brains are not stimulated the same way a healthy brain is in pretty much all the regions. All right, that makes sense. Yeah. They're not uh they're not seeing any shinies, so they don't go out to get them. Right. Makes sense. Yeah, exactly. But with schizotypal personality disorder, they create their own shinies, essentially. Mm-hmm. A lot of their thinking is not rooted in reality. Right. So they're they're creating their own reality inside their heads. Yeah, I mean, just the fact that they have diminished perception and most likely diminished memory formation yep. means that, yeah, the world uh, around them is just going to be dull and, and not interesting. And so they're going to have to form their own perception of, of a world around them. Right. Exactly. You know, the, the brain craves stimulation and, and so it'll make it up if it has to. So that's it. All right. And that's it with uh, the cluster, cluster A's. A's. Yeah. Cool. So Finish the whole cluster. We did. Next up, we'll do cluster C. Um, but what do you think of the, the odd and eccentric personality disorders? I don't think they're all that eccentric. <laughs> right? No, I mean, I feel like that makes a lot of sense. I feel like I, I feel like I know a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, I think that maybe schizotypal is the most eccentric because, again, they have like magical thinking and and more eccentric behaviors, more peculiar behaviors. But it doesn't people with schizotypal personality disorder don't necessarily have all of those things. They, you know, they have to have five of the nine. So they may not have magical thinking. They may not have paranoia. Um, they may not have different speech patterns. So, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think that wraps it up nicely. Yeah. I think uh, we're starting to, to build an understanding of the human mind here. Yeah. This is This is cool. And I hope uh, I hope everybody following along is feeling the same thing. I agree. I really feel like I'm learning here. Good. Good. I'm gl- I'm glad. I'm glad. I hope I hope everyone feels like they're Yeah, me too. they're learning a little bit. Yeah. Um and again, I, you know, we always give the the references so everybody can go and and do their own research, look up these articles, um see all the things that we're talking about, all the different studies and further your understanding of of mental disorders and you know what we try to do with these psyche saturdays is again just 
remove a lot of that stigma surrounding these disorders. So I hope you enjoyed schizotypal personality disorder. And I hope you enjoyed the cluster A personality disorders. And next week we will begin with cluster C. So you can find our podcast on all podcast platforms, Blackbird and Advocacy Podcast. And you can find all of that and our social medias on our link tree at L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Blackbird Advocacy. We will see you tomorrow with a new Blackbird episode. Bye-bye.